All right, good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming to CSIS today. I see a few friends and a few new people. My name is Seth Center. I'm the director of CSIS's project on history and strategy, um, which is CSIS's novel and probably naive idea that people might want a little more history to go along with their tweets when they're talking about statecraft strategy and military affairs. So. Uh, what better way to kick off that hypothesis than with 1,500 pages of military history? Um, that seems like a good test case for whether we can succeed or fail in this endeavor. Uh, I want to thank first Peter Bergen and Ken Pollack, who were my co-conspirators in deciding that we should give a little extra publicity to this uh, terrific piece of military history. So thank you guys for that. I appreciate it. As all of us know, the Iraq War has become uh, an ideological referendum on America's place in the world. And um, what's most striking about that is how little actual history has been written about the Iraq War from the perspective of a professional historian. And so I think as we move into thinking about the implications and future of America's role in the world, its statecraft, its military operations, it's useful to take a minute and dive into the actual history of what happened um, if we're going to make these large assumptions about the meaning of the war. Now, General Milley, in introducing this volume, said this was not going to be the last word on the Iraq War, and it certainly is not. But Joel Rayburn and Frank Sobchak and their teams uh, did a tremendous public service for all of us in putting together just this massive, massive project which involved digging through terabytes of data, dozens if not hundreds of interviews. It's really a remarkable uh, endeavor. I would say, you know, if we take a step back, and there'll be plenty of time to talk about the details of this project, why this project matters at a first order level, at a fundamental level. Um, democracies work best when they're accountable. Accountability requires transparency. Transparency, as we all know, in large organizations is hard, particularly hard in organizations that have to be introspective about large and sometimes unsuccessful endeavors. And so it's really a remarkable, a remarkable act for the United States Army to commission a history like this so close to the events. It's remarkable to put together such a good team to produce that history. And it's even more remarkable that the Army would have the courage to ultimately publish it. And it's even more remarkable, on top of that, that the Army would declassify 30,000 pages of accompanying documents so that we can all assess on our own uh, whether or not the interpretations of this history um, comport with the evidence. And so we'll spend about 15, 20 minutes uh, hearing from Joel and Frank about the genesis of the volume. Then we'll go into a panel on the first volume. And then we'll take a little coffee break and then move forward. So Joel, Frank, enjoy. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Seth, and uh, thank you to uh, the members of the Operation Rocky Freedom study group who are here. I think half the audience uh, is members of the team, but uh, it, was, uh, it was certainly an honor uh, and, uh, and a privilege to uh, uh, 
to help to lead this project. Uh, origins of the project lie in a conversation uh, that General Odierno and General Lloyd Austin had around Christmas time of 2012, where they then, as the Chief of Staff of the Army and the CENTCOM commander, having both been three-star and four-star commanders in Iraq, uh, remarked to one another that the Army needed to capture uh, the lessons and the and the history of those campaigns, um, while uh, it was still fresh on uh, on the minds of army leaders, uh, they themselves were just a couple of years they knew uh, from moving on out of the army, and so while they were in a position to uh, to bring it about, uh, they wanted to establish uh, a history project. Uh, General Austin uh, was particularly well placed. Um, to, uh, because CENTCOM is the holder of the, uh, of the archival records of the Iraq War. And of course, General Odierno, as the Chief of Staff of the Army, was, was well placed uh, to use the Army's institutional resources to try to produce this history. So it was, it was uh, something they conceived of uh, in tandem. General, uh, General Odierno uh, asked me to his office in early 2013 uh, and explained this to me and also explained uh, that he believed the Army had not uh, done something similar uh, for the Vietnam War, uh, nor had captured the lessons of the counterinsurgency campaign in the, in the Vietnam War uh, in an institutional way. And so he wanted to avoid that mistake and have the Army do uh, some self-reflection, especially since he believed that the conflict in, the, in Iraq and in the greater Middle East was not over. And so it was important to, rather than to wait the standard 15 to 20 years uh, that, uh, that the Army tends to do, to try to capture something more quickly so that it could be used in, uh, in the Army's staff colleges, war colleges, uh, and so on for, for leaders who might be expected to go back out into the same theater of war. And his uh, thinking on that was prescient, of course, because in fall 2014, the Army was redeployed back to Iraq essentially to fight the same enemy, but this time in the guise of the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. Now, uh, what did we, what was our charge? Uh, we felt that uh, tactical history uh, would be, uh, would be useful, um, but more useful would be something that army leaders could use, uh, the leaders who are in between the tactical level and the strategic level. We also felt that uh, that tactical stories wouldn't tell the wouldn't tell the story of the war, or those operational level, those theater level lessons that General Odierno and General Austin uh, wanted to learn and and to reflect their own experience. Uh, the strategic level and the policy level, uh, General Odierno and the rest of us felt had, had already begun to be covered. That could be covered by great historians such as Michael Gordon and others who, who had dealt with uh, the story of the Iraq War as it took place, as it played out sort of inside the Beltway here in Washington. So we didn't want to uh, rerun that story. We wanted to do something in between at that operational level of war, at the four-star and three-star level commands in Iraq or occasionally in Tampa to explain how strategy and policy translated into tactical actions on the ground or how tactical events on the ground translated up into the strategy and policy process or didn't for good or ill. 
That was our charge, and that was the scope of these uh, of these histories. That's why you find us as historians trying to put ourselves in the shoes of the four-star and three-star commands, mostly in Baghdad, to see the situation as they saw it, to understand how they responded to decision points uh, as as uh, events unfolded. There was also we had the overarching charge, I think, of explaining why. Uh, the events that transpired after 2003 didn't flow uninterruptedly from the decision to invade Iraq in 2003. That the collapse of the Iraqi state, for example, in June 2014 wasn't, uh, as I say, a direct consequence of the decision to invade Iraq by the U.S. in 2003. That there were many, many uh, strategic and operational decision points after the invasion of Iraq uh, that had a greater impact on the course of events than the decision to invade, uh, as significant a decision as that was. There were some major, I think, uh, uh, historical findings that are that are new, uh, or or that are the, the newest, I would say, uh, historical ground um, that our team broke. Covered, for example, 2005. I think in our. Uh, in our narrative, which is mostly the research work of Frank Sobchak here, uh, comes, really comes out as a pivotal year uh, for, uh, for the entire Iraq War. That's the year when uh, the theory that um, the invasion could lead to elections which would seed a legitimate government which would naturally cause the stabilization, would lead to the stabilization of Iraq. That was proven incorrect for a variety of reasons, uh, one of which is that in 2005, that's the year that the Syrian regime and the Iranian regimes kicked their interference, their interventions in Iraq into high gear. That's the year that the army under-resourced uh, the campaign by sending almost half of the combat power to Iraq from the reserve component and uh, keeping back uh, the active component to go through um, a, a transformation of equipment, uh, as well as a misunderstanding on the U.S. side of the politics uh, of the Iraq campaign at that point and failing to understand uh, failing to understand that uh, the Sunni community was in the midst of its own civil war, uh, that the Shia community was in the midst of a, of a power grab by expatriate uh, Shia Islamist parties that had spent the previous decades mostly outside Iraq in Iran. Uh, and both of them were funneling the surrounding region into uh, the Iraq war. This was, uh, so, so I think, uh, I think a revision of our understanding of that pivotal year of 2005, the year of the Purple Fingers, uh, is the first thing that uh, that our that that I would call uh, readers' attention to. I think also uh, where we broke some new ground is in the story of the surge and the awakening. Uh, the awakening being the tribal movement mainly uh, that reflected that split, the, the civil war that I just mentioned among the Sunnis in 2005, by 2006 and 2007 was playing out uh, with a tribal movement that was separating itself from Al-Qaeda in Iraq and aligning with, uh, uh, with the U.S. military. Not with the Iraqi government, but with the U.S. military. I think the, the, the interplay of the awakening 
and the surge, the, the reinforcement of U.S. forces that President Bush ordered into the theater uh, at the beginning of 2007 has not been that well understood. Uh, the way in which both of them needed the other in order to produce the dramatic drop in violence, the dramatic operational defeats of al-Qaeda in Iraq and later uh, the Shia militant uh, groups in Iraq. And so our, uh, our co-author, Jim Powell, his research into the way the awakening generated and spread uh, at the tactical level, his study of how battalion commanders and company commanders and local sheikhs and so on uh, interacted during that time embarked on a series of confidence building measures, took some leaps of faith. The way in which that interplayed with the arrival of more U.S. forces on the, on the ground, the way in which General Odierno and General Petraeus were able to deploy new forces into some of these tribal areas in order to assist in the awakening, to, uh, to, build, uh, to build confidence among the two sides, and to really punch al-Qaeda in Iraq in the nose during uh, 2007 into early 2008. That's a story that hasn't been explored that well before. And so I, I think uh, readers will will appreciate those chapters, which came from the pen of, uh, of Jim Powell. Uh, third, uh, third point of, I think, historical new ground that I'd like to point out is uh, our, uh, our co-author, uh, Matt Morton, who's here today, uh, did research on the period after, uh, from 2011 onward, from 2011 to 2012 in particular. Uh, and he was able to examine uh, using interviews and using uh, internal journals and so on from U.S. Forces Iraq, General uh, Lloyd Austin's command at the time, the way in which the debate over whether and how the U.S. military should stay in Iraq or whether the U.S. military should leave Iraq, how that played out inside the military command and the kind of choices, the kind of trade-offs that the military command had to make. Uh, and and the uh, the near total uh, the near total surprise with which the the final decision uh, to leave Iraq uh, was received inside that military chain of command, and then the way in which uh, that rapid withdrawal uh, that hardly anyone inside the command or on the Iraqi side expected, how that set the stage for a very turbulent 2012 and 2013, in which the, uh, the Iraqi government of Nuri Maliki suddenly found itself in, in a very uh, tough civil war again, this time with the Islamic State of Iraq. Uh, but the U.S. was not postured or resourced to help. Uh, and so there was, a, there was a steady deterioration of uh, the Iraqi government's position, which culminated in the fall of Fallujah in December 2013, January 2014, and then the collapse of the Iraqi state in its northern provinces, starting in Mosul, Tikrit, and so on, in the middle of, of 2014. The last area, I think, of, uh, of uh, historical new ground, and there are many, many other examples, but these are the ones that I think are most prominent is going back again to uh, Frank Sobchak's work as well as Gene Godfoy's work, who's now standing in the back of the room, of that pivotal period in the, from the end of 2013 to the spring of 2014, uh, when there appeared to be, from Washington and outside, there was an assumption that Iraq was 
uh, that the situation in Iraq was essentially on its way to stabilizing. But inside the command, there was great fear of an outbreak and a sense that there was, uh, there was, there was a barely manageable situation in the country. And then that exploded in April of 2014 into uh, at least a two-front war against both Sunni militants and Shia militants uh, that where the, the U.S. command, the coalition command, uh, at that time under General Sanchez, barely escaped collapse. Uh, and it was only the timely intervention of the 1st Armored Division under Major General Marty Dempsey. 1st uh, Armored Division, which was, had, was already on its way out of Iraq, but just happened to be a few days away uh, from driving down to Kuwait, uh, that it was available for a reserve force to counterattack uh, against the, uh, the militants who, had, who were in danger of taking over the entire center and south of Iraq and save the situation. Uh, uh, a dramatic situation where the 1st Armored Division actually had to cut its helicopters out of shrink wrap on, uh, on the pier in Kuwait and, and uh, reassemble them, send them back up uh, to the theater just to save the situation. That's how close a call it was. And that colored, uh, that colored uh, the under, that, that colored the response uh, to different crises of both the coalition side and the Iraqi side for the remainder of the war. Those are the those are the big uh, those are the big uh, areas of the of the historical narrative that I would draw people's attention to. I should have started all this by saying that I'm speaking on behalf of myself and not the State Department, where I now work, by the way. So can I retroactively uh, put that caveat? Uh, put that caveat on, uh, because, what, be, because the commentary I'm about to make is my own, but I, I would note that um, the, uh, I think the public reception of these works so far has focused on a couple of things that, that might not be uh, the most valuable. First is uh, the bumper sticker takeaway, Army study uh, concludes that Iran won the Iraq war. Uh, I don't know that that's, I, I don't know that we would necessarily put it that way, and I also don't think that that's, uh, that's the only important takeaway uh, of our study. Certainly, I think um, uh, the history as we put it together indicates uh, for sure that uh, the Iranian regime and the Quds Force exited, uh, by the time the United States exited uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2011, that the Quds Force and Iran unquestionably in a much uh, stronger position in Iraq and in the rest of the region than, in, than they were in 2003. That goes, uh, that, that's, that's I think very clear. Uh, and also, I think uh, the story of the, the public reception has, has centered on the way in which it was difficult for the Army to actually go the final mile and publish. This was a work that was, that was pretty much ready for publication by the middle of 2016, but it didn't appear until January of, of 2019. And there was a story inside the Army and a roller coaster of emotions and, and so on before, uh, before it actually appeared. But I think that... Uh, I think that that uh, it we'd be better served to look at the actual to to engage with the narrative that, that this team of historians put together using the archival research, the interviews, the documentary evidence, uh, and and so on. I think that's where the real lessons uh, uh, where the real lessons are. So I'd call people's I'd I'd, uh, I'd ask people to look at it that way. Um, finally. Uh, 
Finally, I would say um, we wrote this um, as Seth uh, pointed out, not to be uh, not to be definitive, uh, not to be the last word. General Odierno charged us with that. He told us, get the conversation going. This should be the first word. Um, General Odierno uh, thought that this should lead to a series of follow-on studies, and we as historians knew that we were, we were doing work uh, that would likely uh, be revisited and, and improved upon, uh, if, not com if not debunked, and we looked forward to that. We looked forward to doing that ourselves as well, as, as uh, as uh, our understanding of the campaign ma uh, matured, uh, there are some there are some gaps in the story. For example, the Iraqi side has not really been told. We tried to tell it to the greatest extent possible, uh, but Iraqis uh, coming from a police state background find it difficult to write their own to, to write their own history uh, on the record. Uh, so th that's I think some time to come, particularly the the various aspects of the insurgency from the inside. I think uh, we've started to get some glimpses of that, especially uh, as the awakening matured and some of the insurgency fractured, parts of the insurgency were willing to talk about others. Uh, so that story began to come out a little bit, but it hasn't come out authoritatively. And so we, we hope that in the decades to come that that will happen. Uh, the role of special operations forces uh, was one that we couldn't give uh, uh, really I think we couldn't do justice to because of the classification issues and the fact that those forces are still out there and they're still that their operational techniques uh, are, are are still sensitive some of them are still operating of course uh, the same commands operating in some of the same places so that's a story yet to come out as well as the many supporting aspects theater logistics the role of the Air Force the role of the Navy the role of uh, coalition components uh, in this war, all of these need some, some further attention. So that's a long way of saying that there's more work to do, and we didn't mean to, we didn't mean for this to be all the work that there is to do. So we hope that, we hope that our two volumes will be, uh, will, will be a foot in the door for historians to come after us, to look at our sources, to find sources of their own, and to really, uh, to really expand our understanding of, of this war uh, even more. It's a campaign that has lasted since early 2003. I think you have to say that it's the same war that's been going on in the northern Middle East since then. That means it's 16 years, 16 years of, of a war. So I hope our two-volume treatment won't be the only treatment that the U.S. government does of this vast campaign. Thank you. Thank you, Seth, and thank you to CSAS for inviting us. Really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, General Odierno, when he commissioned our project, he directed us that, above all, the reason why he was commissioning the project was that so people could learn from the conflict. So by being here, you're actually helping accomplish that mission. And kind of towards that end, some of the things that he directed in terms of the scoping of the project was he wanted it to be unclassified. Um, so throughout the process, we were very fortunate to have his support as well as General Austin's support in declassifying documents, giving access to almost anything that we asked for, and really having a, a great level of top cover that enables us to accomplish our mission. Um, in terms of scoping, I think he also wanted us to have a interesting storyline. So he directed us, rather than kind of follow a more thematic uh, process, which in the past is oftentimes how the Army does its after action reviews or studies, he wanted us to have a narrative, to tell a story. 
so that it could be followed and so that it would be interesting. And some of those storylines, kind of like the story threads you'll see throughout the both volumes. You'll see uh, elements of the detention storyline. You'll see elements of the ISAF and the security force assistance and the efforts to build the ISAF. Um, you'll see the operational level history. And we were also fortunate uh, by the level of degree and support that we were able to uh, achieve through allies. Um, when General Odierno scoped the project at the operational level and scoped it as a ground force study, he directed us to include both special operations forces, which uh, many of the organizations opened their uh, archives and gave us access to previously unaccessible information. We were also able to access, as part of the ground component, uh, the US Marine Corps, who also opened their uh, archives, who gave us access to key leaders, and allowed us to, to review their oral history interviews. As well as allies, uh, we were fortunate to have uh, Matt Morton, who engaged our European allies, um, uh, Joel, who engaged the UK. Uh, we had Polish officers, Italian officers, and, and a swath of our allies contribute to it. So all in told, uh, it was a, a ground force study with a narrative background um, that we were very fortunate to be able to have such high level support for. Um, so thanks. Thanks, guys. So we'll go right into our first panel. Jeannie, come on up. You can you can sit down. I think we need one more chair. Do we have another chair? Okay. And Peter, you can. Okay, we're going to uh, move to the first volume uh, of this amazing uh, work of history, which is from 2003 to 2006. It's the invasion, the insurgency, and the civil war. And we have Gene Godfroy, who is one of the authors of the of that volume, who has a PhD from Princeton. Uh, teaches at West Point, three tours in Iraq, uh, and she'll talk a little bit about the findings of the first volume. And then we'll move to Kim Dozier, who will uh, comment, uh, who was the CBS, CBS bureau chief in Baghdad, uh, at, which point, at which point she was unfortunately uh, critically wounded. Uh, she's uh, my colleague at CNN, and is also a contributor at the Daily Beast. Good. It's on. Turn that. Hello? Test, test? No joy, huh? Please okay. Mind. I will uh, try to project. Can everybody hear me now? Okay. So thanks, Seth. Oh, thanks. All right. Thank you. Hello? Better? Okay. So thanks, Seth, for inviting me to be here today. It's great to be back with the old cast and crew. Uh, the four of us, uh, actually, where's Matt Morton? Is he here? Oh, well, if he was here, it would be the, oh, the five of us uh, started this adventure in 2013, thanks to Joel. Uh, like many of my peers, I spent almost my entire 20s deployed to Iraq. And when Joel asked me to participate in the study, I felt not only a real sense of privilege that I would be able to be a part of something like this, but also a tremendous sense of responsibility to try to start the conversation the right way and in a, in a way that would allow it to continue productively for years to come. Uh, I think in addition to General Odierno wanting this to be the beginning of a conversation, one thing that was really important to him 
was that we acknowledge our failures. If we don't acknowledge them, we can't learn from them. And failures often present us with a greater opportunity to learn than any of the successes that we achieve. With that in mind, he kind of led by example by taking ownership of the failures that he felt he personally made as a commander in Iraq. And I saw that kind of ownership uh, in the people that I interviewed who'd had about 10 to 13 years to reflect on their experiences and be constructively critical of how they performed as commanders and leaders and be constructively critical about how the Army performed as an institution. Uh, contra contrary to what I expected, there was not a lot of finger pointing. There was a lot of ownership and it was a really good way to kind of start getting into this project. So uh, with that in mind, uh, my biggest challenge for today was figuring what in a volume of almost 160,000 words I was going to talk about because the volume spans not only the pre-war time period uh, from 2002 to 2003 where most of the planning was taking place, but takes us up to where Iraq was descending into chaos at the end of 2006. So the way that I decided to approach it was to discuss four key thematic lessons learned that I think cover this period that really resonated to me as I was helping to work on this study. Uh, cover some of the successes briefly and then leave you with what I think is the overarching lesson learned from this time period. So the first of the four thematic areas was the utter lack of military planning for what would happen in phase four. Uh, when I interviewed officers who were in Fifth Corps and CFLIC who were would have been responsible for that phase four planning, almost uniformly they said that the reason they did not plan for phase four is that was somebody else's problem. We were never supposed to go farther than Baghdad and after that we were going to go home and turn over the entire problem set to a State Department or other entity that was going to effectively re-stand up Iraq and make it a democratic neighbor that could be an ally for the United States of the Middle East. The military didn't have to worry about any of that and so they decided not to. Uh, as a result, we spent about 12 to 14 months planning for getting to Baghdad, which took a while of six weeks, and we spent less than two months as a military planning for what would happen after the regime fell. This was ended up being a huge oversight on our part. And just to illustrate that this was not the problem of just civilian policymakers alone, uh, one of the case studies that Colonel Matt Morton pointed me to very early on in the project was the case of the 75th Field Artillery Regiment. They, as a, uh, they were activated simply to exploit the 900 plus weapons of mass destruction sites that we were supposed to find, exploit, and validate the Iraq war with after the invasion. And we left them for an afterthought before they even handed over to the Iraq survey group. So that, uh, that case ended up being really illustrative to me of the failure to plan in general for what was go actually going to happen, what our mission actually was in the Iraq war. So my key takeaway from that lesson learned is that military leaders cannot abdicate their responsibility pr to prepare for the day after major combat operations end, regardless of what their civilian leadership is telling them. So much for lesson number one. Uh, lesson number two deals with the failure to understand the human terrain in Iraq. And I think Joel briefly touched on that during his introduction, and I'm not going to repeat what he has said here. Uh, but that lack of understanding was derived from four key areas. The first was that Iraq was pretty much a black box after the Gulf War. Uh, the only thing we were interested in Iraq intelligence-wise was the air defense artillery systems in the northern and southern no-fly zone areas, and we were interested in Iraq's weapons of mass destruction program. That was true at a national intelligence level. That was also true at a military intelligence level. And we never really aimed or tried to penetrate the complex social and political dynamics that were happening inside the country uh, after uh, we withdrew in the Gulf War I. 
uh, related to that black box problem were some very overly optimistic and ultimately incorrect planning assumptions. Among them, we assumed that Iraq would be like liberated Germany or liberated France after World War II and that we would come in, get a ticker tape parade, we would simply reform the institutions that already existed there, we would have an Iraqi expatriate government led by Ahmed Chalabi and others who would take things in hand and establish a completely representative and stable democratic Iraq. That ended up being a very bad assumption, especially when you think that it took us decades to get things right in Germany and Japan, and we were expecting to accomplish this almost immediately after the fall of regime in Iraq. And Iraq didn't have anywhere near the institutional capability or stability that Germany and Japan did after World War II. Uh, the third reason that we failed to understand the human terrain at the ground forces level was that most of our intelligence systems and assets and the way that we did intelligence analysis were directed at Soviet-style formations and military formations that we were fighting in the combat training centers. We didn't have the technology, we didn't have the processes, and we didn't really have the interest in developing a good intelligence picture of social political dynamics, to say nothing of counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, militia fighting, and civil war. And the fourth source of the reason that we didn't go after the human terrain perhaps the way that we should, I think was probably illustrated best in a book written by Emma Skye called The Unraveling. We had, in a word, a superiority complex. We thought we were better than them. And as a result, we didn't try to understand what was really going on with the complexities of the social situation that we found ourselves in. Those failures to understand and penetrate the human terrain ended up contributing significantly to Iraq's descent into chaos in 2006. The lesson learned here to me was, you go to war with the enemy you have, not the enemy you want. Uh, the third major oversight, uh, I'm not going to get into a whole lot of detail on in the interest of time, was detention operations. Clearly what happened in Abu Ghraib had dramatic impact on, what, on the, uh, both the perception and the legitimacy of what the United States and its allies were trying to accomplish in Iraq after 2004. But here are some questions we never really got right. What do we do with combatants in civilian clothes? How do we know who the combatants are? What do we do with those in detention while they are in detention? What is our criteria and process for releasing detainees? Ultimately, our failure in detention created more adversaries than it reduced. And ultimately, the lesson learned here is that detention operations is a strategic issue. We haven't gotten detention right yet, but we continue to under-resource and underthink this problem. And the fourth key lesson learned from this time period is that we were stuck in a losing strategy that we stubbornly stuck to until things got really bad. We had a strategy that's end state was along the lines of a stable and democratic Iraq at peace with its neighbors, an ally in the war of terror, and capable of maintaining its own security. We were trying to accomplish that in two years, and we were trying to accomplish that by withdrawing and disengaging back into our bases away from the Iraqi population. In addition, from 2004 to 2006, we had a strategy predicated on transitioning a deteriorating security situation to Iraqi security forces who had been completely disbanded and rebuilt to be only a 12 brigade sized combat infantry force. Uh, ultimately, uh, General Petraeus was responsible for expanding that mission in 2004 and 2005 to be a fully fledged Ministry of Defense capability backed uh, backing combat forces with logistics and intelligence and all sorts of things of that nature. He also uh, made, took the initiative to take the Iraqi interior ministry forces and the police forces in particular under his wing. But even still, he would often comment that it took us six weeks to destroy, destroy an army that would take us another 20 years to build one. Again, we were trying to build it in less than two years. 
So the lesson to me here is align your strategic ends to an established set of goals or standards, not to arbitrary timelines. Or if your civilian leadership is establishing an arbitrary timeline, then you need to be very realistic about what their expectations ought to be as you proceed with that timeline. Uh, those are the major four lessons learned that I wanted to cover, but I also did want to highlight some of the successes of the United States military and its allies in this time period. Uh, the first success is that despite being completely unprepared for the type of adversary that we faced with far fewer forces than we had planned to have, we did actually achieve a stunning military victory in March and April of 2006. We got to Baghdad in less than half the time that we originally had planned to do, and that is a significant accomplishment that cannot be overlooked. Uh, I also wanted to bring up the provincial start reconstruction teams that were started by Ambassador Khalilzad. That was an incredible initiative that would pay dividends later on, and had it been resourced properly, might have, been pay might have paid further dividends still. Uh, putting the Iraqi police and the interior ministry and policing more generally under the control of military forces instead of the State Department. The State Department didn't have the resources to support that mission and frankly they weren't interested in it. And at the time Iraq's security situation was so bad that it made sense to make the police just as capable of conducting counterinsurgency operations as their military counterparts. Yes, we ended up having some problems with those forces later, and due to the fact that we didn't understand the human terrain very well, we didn't realize how many of the forces that we were standing up were being co-opted by militias and insurgent organizations, but the thought was an excellent portion of trying to expand the strategy of providing security to Iraq. Uh, we also started supporting local movements like the Sunni Awakening. Uh, sometimes the enemy screws up, and Al-Qaeda in western Iraq had been so heavy-handed that it was starting to turn its allied tribal militias against it. Uh, fortunately, we had tactical, operational, and strategic level leaders who saw this opportunity and took it, and that would pay huge dividends for us in stabilizing the situation in 2007. Uh, and finally, this period also shows the rebirth of counterinsurgency. Uh, one of the things that I think is funny about this lessons learned is that we don't ever learn this lesson. The types of wars that we fight almost always will involve some form of, and I quote, low intensity conflict. It's going to be some combination of civil war, insurgency, armed groups fighting between armed groups that we really might not want to penetrate into. Uh, we established a counterinsurgency academy at Taji. We saw great success with initiatives like Colonel McMaster and Talafer and Lieutenant Colonel Alpha and, and Al-Qaib, and we tried to start capitalizing on some of those bottom-line initiatives to treat this as a counterinsurgency fight instead of a fight to withdraw out of the cities. If I were to sum up the years between 2003 to 2006 in a single overarching lesson learned, I would borrow from one of Tywin Lannister's epic quotes from Game of Thrones, namely that winning is not the same thing as ruling. This is the real lesson that I hope sticks from the Iraq War, both for our army and the United States as a nation. The Iraq War is a sterling example of ground forces fighting and winning a stunning battlefield on the victory, only to fail, for a number of reasons, at either defeating or destroying the right organizations and stabilizing the country. Uh, large organizations tend to regress to their proverbial mean and fall back on their comfort zones. I think the Army is no different. Despite what happened in Iraq, the Army seems to remain institutionally opposed to fighting anything other than peer or near-peer militaries and major combat operations in which it can maintain a technological advantage. Post-war management likely remains someone else's problem, a situation that presents an unacceptable level of risk for current and future conflicts. Thanks. Well, it's an honor to be here to talk about this work that left me many times saying, oh, that's what was going on. Um, 
I was in Iraq um, as a CBS News correspondent from 2003 um, until uh, my team was hit by a Zarqawi car bomb in 2006. Um, I come there not from Washington, D.C., but from being based in Jerusalem. So from my perspective, I didn't know the military very much, didn't know them at all. I got the Marines and soldiers thing wrong, even though I'm a da daughter of a Marine. Um, so I had a lot to learn when I started covering the war, and I watched the U.S. Army um, learning too, learning as they went on. So what this uh, report does in great detail, I got a snapshot of um, on the ground once military officers were willing to share with us. Initially, they saw us as the enemy tearing down what they were trying to do. Um, I would say after the first year, year and a half, especially um, as some of them started cycling back in, there was instead a frustration that the Pentagon wasn't listening um, to deadly effect. And I started getting uh, a lot more sources, let's put it that way. Um, what this report shows, though, is that the Army is willing to give itself a harsh grade and put out something like this as a cautionary tale. Send us to war, yes, but do your homework first. Um, Joel's invitation for a critique of the finished work um, also shows that I would love to know what was happening um, in Rumsfeld's mind and some of the places where you just had to say, and he did this, and all we can surmise is, you know, despite him writing a book on the subject, um, there are more questions to be answered. To me, the work shows that this idea that you can have a short, sharp, a short, sharp, winnable war is a fiction. Um, I have seen some work since, um, well, in the past three or four years that the Joint Staff was doing, saying that if you're going to invade somewhere, think of it as a beachhead, and you're going to have to stay 15 to 20 years to change the culture, to maintain the relationships, to keep the influence there, but as opposed to thinking of that as a high cost, think of it as an opportunity. I don't know if you all would agree with that, but um, I can see some of what happened in this war um, arguing in that direction. So I'm going to walk through a couple of the things that I saw where um, on the ground that this report helped explain. When we first got there, um, I drove Dan Rather in in our armored vehicle through western Iraq um, as most of Saddam's forces were fleeing in various different directions. We did have some Fedayeen attackers try to open fire. Um, luckily, we got through a chicane before they got their weapons raised. When we got into Baghdad, what we found was, um, in many cases, U.S. troops not knowing what to do, and Iraqi security forces waiting to be told what to do. Now, we'd been in Iraq um, under Saddam. CBS News had covered many things there for years. So I'd been in and out. I was a little amazed at how little knowledge there was about what was going on inside Iraq, because so many reporters had been allowed to be in there, and we'd reported what we'd seen, or at least been allowed to see, inside Baghdad. And we'd seen that 
um, there was a lot of sanctions busting, but that the city itself, beyond certain central areas, was falling apart. And you got to know, if Baghdad's falling apart, the rest of the country is. So we were surprised at how many US troops were surprised at the state of disrepair of the electricity system, the water system, et cetera. Um, but initially, in those first few days, what shocked me was that the Marine, uh, this one Marine patrol I came across, didn't know what to do. And then I went to an Iraqi police station, and I found all the Iraqi police in there, sitting in their uniforms, waiting for the Americans to tell them what to do. They were from a society where, for decades, if you showed initiative, you got killed. So you waited for someone to say it was OK to go out and patrol the streets. In the interim, while the US commanders figure that out, we filmed the riots and the looting. We, the, the bank, the central bank getting looted, the museum getting looted. And we kept saying, where are the American troops? Um, it's, it's the kind of report that I wonder if that helped drive policy when it was shown on the evening news back in the States. Um, a question I'd love to, again, put to uh, perhaps some of the folks who are in the Pentagon um, who are in this audience can answer that question. Um, the ROE section, the Rules of Engagement section, where you explained the evolution um, as troops who'd come in for combat all of a sudden were dealing with a policing situation and didn't know how far to take the force. Again, we'd run across people on the streets. They didn't know how to deal with the Iraqis. They didn't know how to deal with us. You know, we got guns pointed at us, um, and uh, superior officers had to run in and say, whoa, 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 that's a reporter. Uh, there were just a lot of scared people who, uh, there was a little bit of the, you know, the dog's caught the car and doesn't know what to do with it. In a, in a uh, they were um, frightened, yet victorious, and there was the whole now what. And what I didn't understand was the now what was going on right up to the top of the chain, uh, as that um, quote um, from, I believe, McKernan showed. Then I watched um, the evolution of the insurgency. And I watched US commanders on the ground see it. Uh, I had gone out because there were riots of Ba'athist officers outside the green zone. So my team and I had gone out and interviewed them. And the Ba'athist officers told us, if you don't find, give us a way to feed our families, we're going to start attacking US troops. We have the technology. We can build roadside bombs. And lo and behold, they kept their promise. They went and did it. So I saw uh, General Mark Hurtling. He invited me into an event he was doing with, where he'd invited all the old Ba'athist generals into a big hotel. Um, he said, what I want to do is show them the respect due to their old ranks and ask them, you know, look, we can't employ you, but we want to try to find jobs for your guys so they'll stop attacking our troops. To me, as a reporter, this just seemed logical, intelligent. We put it, it was like in the top three minutes of the evening news. Uh, Hurtling got in touch with me later. He nearly got fired because of that report. Because um, it was seen, I was told from a distance, in the Pentagon as an American general bowing to the Iraqi army he defeated. 
So I saw that was just one fractal of something I saw repeated again and again. Then there was the um, senior officer um, out in Anbar who told me he saw a rising insurgency, but he's like, yeah, but I can't say that on the record on the interview because the Pentagon doesn't want to hear that. And I was like, well, if you can't say it, how can you develop a strategy to fix it? And this report gets into the sort of the divide between those dealing with the problem right in front of them and the telephone game going all the way back to Washington, Washington thinking, no, 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 we went in with this one idea in mind. And the point of the spear was detecting that things were different. And it just took a long time for that to soak in. And I feel like some people were talking to us um, because they were using us to do an end run around um, Pentagon officials who didn't want to know. So one of the things that we saw was with the rise of Shiite politicians um, and the rise of the death squads, there was an increasing sectarian war going on. Uh, there were Shiite death squads that would go out at night and um, hit Sunni neighborhoods. Um, they were going through, in some cases it seemed, hitting local officials. In other cases, they were very strategic. One of our engineers at CBS News had been a pilot um, in the war against Iran. And he said, the list, there's, there's a list, it must be alphabetical of all the pilots I served with, because alphabetically they're being knocked off. So he was afraid to leave our bureau to visit his family. And so this report gives me the other side of some of that. Um, what we saw evolving was this sectarian divide that was finally expressed in the Gold Mosque of Samara bombing um, that did help just increase the bloodbath. And yet we also were interviewing people like General Casey, who was being told by his Iraqi advisors, get your people off the streets. The sight of American soldiers is what is um, delegitimizing our fledgling Iraqi government because everyone thinks we're American stooges because you're still out there. So I could see Casey and others trying to follow that advice. But then when that mosque got blown up, and that was supposed to be the test for the Iraqi security forces to keep the peace, and they failed miserably, the blowback, the consequences of that, I think we're feeling to this day. The other thing I saw were um, a lot of mistakes by poorly trained soldiers who were not um, trained for a counterinsurgency war. Um, I will never forget the day, it was Christmas, we were trying to do a feel-good Christmas story about US troops. So we went with a colonel and his guys on a raid. And they didn't find the weapons caches that they hoped to find. They only found the legal one AK-47 per house. But at one of the houses, I guess, well, the colonel's guys told me that he actually never came out on raids, but he wanted to be on TV. So he came out on this one. Well, there was the owner of the household. It was like he was in front of a duplex, because he had two wives. And it was a perfect duplication. And the 
colonel started berating the um, Sunni man. So he was, here's the Sunni man, well-dressed, but on the ground, flexi-cuffed, outside his beautiful duplex. And the colonel's like, so, Haji, what's wrong with you? One wife, not good enough for you? You got to have two of everything? With his southern drawl and on camera, and I'm like, oh my gosh, what is this guy doing? And his guys watched in horror and pulled me aside and said, please, don't put that on TV. We don't let him out of the fob because he's a good old boy. We know better. Well, they might have known better. And in the end, after discussions with, um, you know, CBS News was getting hammered for its um, treatment of the US military. It was hard for me sometimes to even get an embed because, oh, CBS News is coming. Um, the, the liberals who hate the Bush administration. And um, I wish in the end that we had put that story on the air because it was only later, uh, maybe a year and a half, two years later, that I learned of the fight that was going on inside the US military for how you prosecute this war. Are, are the Iraqis all enemies or are they part of, can they be part of the fight? Do we need to win them over too? So in the end, I think things like that helped fuel the rise of that, you know, that man, I'm sure, he might not have been a member of the insurgency before, but I bet he wrote a big check to them afterwards, if not joined them. Um, so when we were hit by a, what we were later told um, was a Zarqawi car bomb. It killed uh, the captain, uh, James Alex Funkhauser for, from the 4th Infantry Division, his translator, who we can only call Sam, um, Iraqi, so that was to protect his family, and my camera crew, Paul Douglas and James Brolin. That was just one of five car bombs in Baghdad that day. So um, was I mad at the bombers? I had to ask myself, were one of their family members killed by a Shiite death squad that they blamed the Americans for because weren't we omnipotent? Couldn't we stop them if we wanted? We have night vision goggles, right? Because that's the kind of logic I would hear on the streets. Or had they joined this unit because a family member had been accidentally killed at a checkpoint by an 18-year-old American kid who um, was there with insufficient training, uh, uh, but always on, under fire. So fast forward to today, the US invasion didn't cause the sectarian violence that we see still playing out. But I think we overestimated our ability to reform that society and teach them the values of appreciating uh, each other's religions, et cetera, when there's that much blood um, spilled by both sides. Uh, we can't be arrogant about our ability to fix it. At the same time, um, I wish that we had, as a country, invested in staying longer to try to keep that influence going um, so that we could have avoided the rise of ISIS 2.0, uh, ISIS 1.0. And um, I just got back from three weeks in Iraq in February. And what I saw was um, child soldiers who are not being given any sort of counseling and have been told by ISIS that when ISIS comes back, they're the next generation. Um, 
hundreds of thousands of former ISIS families being held in de facto internment camps. Uh, they have relatives who are in Sunni villages. That's building resentment. And Shiite militia groups who are ostensibly part of the government who are divvying up reconstruction contracts in areas that they never used to run. Um, and also all the way down to the lowest level tactically um, setting up checkpoints that shake people down. You only need 1% of that in any country to be magnified um, through the telephone game so that a whole population feels under siege. And I fear um, we are now bystanders in something that we may not be able to stop a second time or a third time. But uh, thanks to the scholarship that you all have done, there is at least a blueprint before hopefully we get into another war like this. You know, um, thank you very much, Kim. Um, so Colonel Raven said you know, he's hoping that obviously there will be other histories. But I, I think let us be clear that this is, there was no Chilcot inquiry as was in the United Kingdom. This is going to be, in my view, the or more or less authoritative account of what happened in the Iraq war. It is unlikely uh, that any government agency uh, will put the resources in that Colonel Rabin and, and Frank Sobjack and the other authors uh, had the, the ability to do more than 100 interviews with the key players. The only person they didn't speak to was Donald Rumsfeld. Um, and so I, this, uh, Kim mentioned Mark Hurtling. And there's a scene in the history where Mark Hurtling is talking to some Iraqi generals. And suddenly they get the news that the Iraqi army has been disbanded. And so, you know, one of the original sins of the Iraq war was the disbandment of the Iraqi army and, and getting rid of the Ba'athists at the, uh, at the uh, sort of top three echelons. So, Gene, um, to the extent that we can ever unpack who exactly was responsible, who, is, who was responsible for that decision? That's, a, that's still kind of one of the great mysteries. We get asked this question a lot. Uh, I think. We can trace it back to the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. At that time was um, Wolfowitz, Paul Wolfowitz. But ultimately, Bremer issued the order. So uh, if he was truly, and when we talked to him, he never said he didn't uh, make that decision, but he ostensibly is the face of it. And he's, uh, so I would say if you're going to pin it anywhere, I would put it on Ambassador Bremer. Oh. I think, Seth, we're kind of running a little behind time. I'll... Okay. <laughs> Um, and um, so it, Ambassador Bremer made this decision by himself? No, absolutely not. Uh, see, he definitely had his marching orders coming over to Iraq. And uh, he was taking advice from a lot of different people, the office, including the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. And despite the advice and the recommendation he was given to by the military commanders on the ground, he decided to go ahead with it. General Casey, uh, who you mentioned, Kim, you know, uh, he was also, to some extent, following orders, right? I mean, he, it's not that he came up with a strategy in Iraq by himself, right? This was coming from Abizaid and, and from the Pentagon above Abizaid. So reflect a little bit about, on, or, or Gene, reflect on General Casey's generalship and um, the way he handled the war. So I would go back to one of my original comments. And uh, one of the things that I would highlight about learning a lesson and taking ownership, I do think General Casey took ownership. Most of the time when you're making bad decisions, nobody's making bad decisions they know they will be bad at the time. 
Uh, most bad decisions only turn out being bad in hindsight. And I think General Casey and, and General Abizade, with the strategy of Iraqization and withdrawing and letting the Iraqis take charge, uh, were kind of uh, not only, it, it was a little bit of wishful thinking, it was a little bit of being told by the Iraqi expatriates they were working with that yes, this was going to work and this was the best way to go and it wasn't their country and they didn't need to be here. Uh, I think the civilian leadership was very eager to get out of the country at the time and that absolutely affected the CENTCOM commanders and General Casey's decision making. Uh, where I think the problem was, was after the Samara mosque bombing in, two, uh, ba Samara mosque bombing in 2006, they didn't change their way of thinking. Uh, and if there was one thing that I would tell General Casey to go back and do is say, look, that was a huge event. It was time to start listening to what commanders were saying and what some of the dissonance uh, inside the military and the dissonance inside the political leadership were saying and start considering a shift in strategy. I, can I ask yeah. a, a question? One of the things I kept seeing on the ground was that um, we'd go and visit units who were training Iraqis and they just weren't learning fast enough and they didn't have an NCO corps and um, the very few of the officers led by being in the field with on the special ops side, yes. And yet, Casey seemed to be getting reports that they were doing pretty well. Did you, what did you find in interviewing people about, did they look back and say they felt they had pressure to report that they were making more progress than they were? So I spent 2000, June 2004 to June 2005 on uh, then Lieutenant General Petraeus's personal staff. So I got to sit next to him while he was talking to the Iraqis and sit in the congressional delegations that he was speaking to about the state of the Iraqi security forces. He knew it was an impossible mission. He knew there was no way that we were going to be able to set up these forces in two years and that we had no experience starting a military from scratch. And uh, we were absolutely struggling to do the best we could with the information and the resources that we had avail available at the time. Uh, one of the things that uh, struck me uh, multiple times is that we would throw a lot of equipment and a lot of bodies, sorry, Iraqi, we would throw equipment to Iraqi bodies on the ground and expect, that, and expect them to be able to run in and fight and we would wonder why we would have these mass desertions and people going AWOL. Some of that was part of the fact that they weren't trained and they weren't prepared, but some of that was the fact that they were getting paid in cash and they would have to take that cash home in order to feed their families and then come back. So we started seeing the AWOLs in a slightly different light. Uh, there were a lot of former Iraqi military and tribal militias that were familiar with how to shoot a weapon and fire a gun, but they weren't trained in how to fight and prepare and go into battle as a unit. So they absolutely needed coalition partners with them. And the coalition partners were under the impression that that wasn't their job until the military transition teams and partnerships between Iraqi units and uh, U.S. forces on the ground happened a little bit later. Uh, but the uh, I think General Petraeus was realistic about it. I think he was realistic when he told General Casey what was happening. I think there is a reluctance among general officers to be completely candid with their civilian leadership about what the capabilities uh, actually are that they are trying to build. Uh, as a military commander, you want to say, I'm getting the mission done, I am doing my job. It's hard to say, but I can't do exactly what you want me to do. And I think that's where the disconnect between what General Casey was reporting and what political leadership was hearing was. There were, even though it wasn't necessarily official army policy, I mean, you mentioned McMaster and Talafar. Um, I mean, to what extent were people improvising uh, with counterinsurgency, even though it wasn't necessarily the policy of the military uh, before it became the policy of the military? 
I think we were improvising from the time we started fighting the Fedayeen mm. uh, during the invasion, a non-traditional force that would either be in civilian clothes or might be wearing the quote-unquote black pajamas. Uh, we had to start to improvise because it wasn't the enemy that we had planned for, prepared for, or want to fight, and they weren't easily defeatable. Uh, we didn't like fighting IEDs because they came out of nowhere. We didn't know who was building them, and I remember commanders calling them cowardly attacks because they were, they were effective and they were damaging to their soldiers, and you couldn't actually meet them head-to-head -head with a, superior, a technically and tactically superior military force head-on. Classic counterinsurgency. Uh, when I was with the 101st in Mosul during the first iteration, we had commanders, and General Petraeus is one of them, but his brigade commanders always did an, uh, a tremendous job of saying, okay, not, we have to make friends with the people, we have to win hearts and minds, and a lot of that stemmed from, it was leader-led from General Petraeus from his dissertation research and things of that nature, but it, it just seemed to be common sense at the time. Uh, we need to have elections, we can't be here forever, we're gonna start having to create the conditions so that we can leave. And those improvisations, again, started probably as early as March of 2003. Okay, if you have a question, raise your hand. Wait for the, because we have a mic. Yeah, this gentleman here. Um, my name is Kumail Salman. I worked as an Iraqi interpreter from 2003 to 2008 uh, for the army and the embassy in the Green Room, probably you're familiar with that. Um, my question is about the role of the Iraqi exiles, exactly like Ahmed Chalabi, in the immediate fall of the Saddam regime. Uh, did, uh, were they given an opportunity to work on the ground and uh, uh, achieve something to help Iraq or in directing the policy of uh, Iraq in the immediate uh, uh, fall of the regime? Yes, so there was an initial effort to, I think they were called the Free Iraqi Forces. Ahmed Chalabi had this idea that we could find a bunch of expatriates who were going to work with him and come and fight inside the country. And we gave those forces a chance to work in conjunction with our special operations forces. That didn't work out so well. And then again, he got another opportunity when the first transitional government was formed to serve in that as a as a, along with other Iraqi expatriates who, as we found out later, many of the local Iraqi citizens did not really view as legitimate. But they were given an opportunity to try to run the country on those initial governing councils. Gentleman in back. If I may just add, and this is an interagency problem. Oh, there's a microphone coming. Okay. Anybody uh, that worked in Eastern Europe after the fall of the wall uh, would have been quite familiar with the idea that expatriates did not do well and would have had no expectations that it would be much different in Iraq. Um, Okay. And that leads to a larger question I have of how you get advice at the operational level and below. I know what came out of OSD policy because I worked there at the time. But uh, a lot depended upon someone else to do it, the Foreign Service. The military still has no idea how small the Foreign Service is yet and no way to get the expertise integrated in, at the operational level and below with a few poll ads. How did this happen in, in Iraq uh, at the time? What political advice were you getting from uh, folks in theater, not the professional military? You mean political advice from the interagency? Yes. I mean, you know, the, the, I'm both a retired Army and retired Foreign Service. The Foreign Service is nuanced. The Army does not. 
Uh, and that is the question. A lot of these assumptions that were in place would have been thought to be very odd from looking at it from a foreign service viewpoint. And you had experts in the, re in remember, the region. Remember that the State Department and the intelligence agencies too, um, it, it was a bit like the, the North Korea or the Iran problem now. It was a bit of a black box. So I know that there were people like Ambassador Tom Krajewski. There were people surging from the State Department into the area trying to identify, because I remember um, asking them, uh, interviewing people about, okay, how are you forming these local councils? And they were working hard to identify people who weren't Baathists, but were intellectual enough, brave enough, um, to want to step into some sort of a civil society role, but they had to, they were, it seemed to be a patchwork of, when I would visit General Petraeus, that was one way of doing it. General Corelli um, was engineering another way to do it. Um, and they were each working out, trying to reach out through the local tapestry of um, community groups such as had been allowed to exist under Saddam to identify people willing to take these jobs. So that, that was absolutely true. Some, we actually had started to direct some of our intelligence capability at finding the right people that we needed to be meeting with. That was after meeting with the wrong people and realizing some of the negative aspects that it could cause. Uh, the interagency started sending people out to assist the military, or at least to start doing reconstruction type operations uh, under the Office of uh, ORHA, Office of Reconstruction and Humanitarian Assistance. Uh, and then a lot of those people, even if they didn't stay, found counterparts that they could relay information to after they departed the country. Uh, the State Department also started sending foreign service officers in in 2003. I remember working uh, to work with the provincial level governments in Iraq and military units would partner with, uh, they weren't called provincial reconstruction teams at the time, I think they were called governance support teams. Uh, in August to September of 2003 is when I, they started to filter in. And as far as I know, most units had a pretty productive working relationship with them. The problem, again, going back to what Kim said, is that we just didn't really have a good understanding of what was going on. And that contributed us to making a lot of mistakes in helping to stand up and uh, promulgate these local governments. Great. Well, we want to thank both of you. Thank you, Kim Dozier, and thank you, Jean Goffrey, uh, very much. Thank you. Okay, we're back for volume two. Is everybody okay in the back? Okay, good. Um, we're fortunate to have Jim Powell, Colonel Jim Powell, one of the authors of volume two, and Ken Pollock from AEI to talk about um, a period that lasts really from the beginning of the surge all the way to the end. Um, we'll get out of here about 11.15, so Jim will take about 15 minutes to describe his findings from the volume. Ken will provide his remarks, and then hopefully we'll have time for a little more question and answer from all of you. Just to set the stage, I thought I'd just um, outline the period as the authors found it in late 2006, because it's really a remarkable series of intersecting and complex challenges and choices that the Army faces. Okay? So there's six that the authors have identified in two, late 2006. One. The United States' distrust of Prime Minister Maliki and his government are deepening. Two, there's an open question of whether sectarian, sectarianism within the government of Iraq will, give it, will allow it to have the will or capability to go after both al-Qaeda in Iraq and Shia militants. Three, there's intensifying coalition warfare against Shia proxies within Iraq. 
Four, there's a Lumid intra-Shia war between Maliki and the satirists. Five, the coalition and Maliki uh, tensions are running high because they're adopting diametrically opposite views of how to approach the, the Shia militant problem. And finally, six, this is six and you know, not the, not, you know, clearly not a priority. In the north, both Arab Kurd tensions and the AQI threat are festering with the coalition and the government of Iraq lacking the means to resolve either problem. So if you could imagine trying to design a strategy to deal with those complex problems, Jim is going to describe how that occurred. All right, thanks, Seth, and uh, thanks to CSIS for providing the venue to discuss this project. Uh, in the interest of time, uh, I'll offer four findings roughly categorized in accordance with the levels of conflict that the study explores. At the level of, of policy or politics, the Iraq War seemed to me to, to highlight the multiple aspects associated with maintaining productive civil-military relations. Uh, one way to view civil-military relations is as a dialogue to align political ends with military means. And in late 2006, uh, the period of the war in which Volume 1 of our study ends and Volume 2 begins, uh, General George Casey found himself engaging in this kind of dialogue with both uh, President George W. Bush and Prime Minister Nouri Maliki. So, so here I'm suggesting that uh, first, that Casey's engagement with, with the host nation political leader constituted its own strand of civil-military relations with the set of challenges distinct from those he encountered in his dealings with the U.S. chain of command. Casey treated Maliki as a partner, albeit one driven by a unique political calculus that concerned far more than the relatively narrow scope of American military interests. This Casey recognized as a delicate civil-military relationship, and he managed it at times by deferring to Maliki as a political leader when he, uh, that is Casey, perceived longer-term benefit in, in doing so. Uh, second, in these dialogues centered on the alignment of ends and means, I think what we see in the Casey-Maliki relationship is a case of diverging ends, whereas in the case a Casey-Bush Casey relationship, uh, we see a diverging conception of acceptable means and the ways in which to apply those means. In the first case, I'm referring to competing visions of, of, future, of a future Iraq. One uh, in which stability would come through Sunni-Shia reconciliation and the defeat of sectarian militias and terrorist groups. And one in which stability would come through Shia dominance and Sunni marginalization. In the second case, what I'm suggesting is that Casey and Bush shared a, a basic understanding of the coalition end state in Iraq, but uh, for a host of reasons, differed in their views on how best to achieve it. Uh, the, mo the most well-known difference centered on U.S. troop numbers and, more critically, the extent to which U.S. troops should participate directly in security operations. The, the implications of this Casey-Bush div divergence were a loss of leverage that undermined Casey's engagement with Maliki, 
and an atmosphere of ambiguity that made the coalition struggle for leverage over the government of Iraq even harder. Uh, one of Casey's advisors offered a bleak assessment of U.S. political will in November 2006. The Iraqis know your hands are tied in Washington, he wrote. They want their view of Iraqi society more than we want our view. And they both know this and know that you know this. Uh, Casey concurred, uh, wondering, uh, with, a, with a margin note, uh, wondering in the form of a margin note, I should say, are we irrelevant because of our desire to withdraw? Uh, yet, uh, the general uh, labored under a political constraint that, that was only imagined. Bush, as we know, uh, was willing to increase the number of U.S. troops in Iraq in late 2006 and, in fact, eventually insisted on it. Still, uh, the President did not communicate this to Casey in any definitive sense until mid-December, and the result was mixed messaging to Maliki who heard from Casey a commitment to reduce U.S. troops and accelerate the transition of security responsibility to the Iraqi government if the prime minister took steps to advance reconciliation uh, with the Sunnis and promised to crack down on the Jaysh al-Mahdi. Meanwhile, Bush, in a private meeting with Maliki, offered assurances of more U.S. troops as a way of extracting the same concession. So this ambiguity in civil-military relations, uh, I think, also reinforced, or at least uh, left unchallenged, Casey's predisposition that committing more US troops would yield, at best, only temporary and local benefits, and at worst, might exacerbate the sectarian conflict. And it's worth mentioning that, that CENTCOM Commander uh, General John Abizaid and Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld shared this predisposition. Uh, at the strategic level, one can explain the surge of U.S. troops and enabling forces in 2007 as a change in the alignment of ends, ways, and means. We often speak of strategy in those terms and understand a strategy's failure as a mismatch between the ends sought and the means applied. I think when we consider the surge alongside the strategy it replaced, you have a fairly similar conception of ends, uh, a stable, secure, and ultimately self-reliant Iraq. Uh, you have a modest to substantial increase in means and a dramatic change in ways. The shift from an emphasis on accelerated transition to an emphasis on population security was really just one plank in a raft of changes that formed a, a comprehensive and different approach. Uh, I will hazard an observation here and, and say that both uh, Casey's transition strategy and the surge produced narratives that were uh, internally consistent. That is to say, there was a logic to the causal chain that each narrative outlined. In the transition bridging strategy, uh, in late 2006, for example, uh, accelerating the transfer of security functions to Iraqi control would, would theoretically bolster Maliki's credibility and thus help the coalition acquire the leverage necessary to prod the government of Iraq into advancing national reconciliation. 
this in turn would establish the foundation for long-term stability. It was as Casey attempted to explain to Bush how the United States could win by drawing down. Yet, for all its internal logic or consistency, the transitioning bridging strategy was not consistent with what Iraq's security environment de demanded in 2006. Uh, the logic of narratives sometimes works to cloud our view and strategy doesn't mesh with reality. To be fair, uh, the, the narratives of 2007 contain their own flaws. The idea that a growing patchwork of local accommodations would gradually gel into national reconciliation seemed to apply the logic of arithmetic to a calculus problem. Uh, likewise, the idea that the coalition could actually attain the conditions for uh, irreversible momentum seems a bit fanciful in a world where most historians, at least, believe that nothing is inevitable. Uh, last two points will be, will be somewhat brief. At the operational level, uh, I want to highlight the persistence of controlling key terrain as an imperative, even in counterinsurgency operations where we tend to emphasize cert certain functions or, uh, to use an old doctrinal term, logical lines of operations rather than physical lines of operations. Uh, the 2007 surge of U.S. combat troops and associated enablers could have been employed in any number of ways. That commanders committed these troops in Baghdad and in the surrounding belts of the capital simultaneously contributed to a pattern of reinforcing effects that eventually resulted in a dramatic reduction in violence. This deliberate choice of taking the fight to the belts while ramping up pressure in Baghdad itself attacked uh, the enemy's strategy in a way that hadn't been done before. And uh, finally, at the tactical level, I'd like to point out a feature of the relationship between ways and means. And it's this, while the means of strategy are often concrete, the ways in which commanders apply them are malleable. Take joint, uh, take joint security stations, for example. Although the coalition established the preponderance of joint security stations throughout 2007, the first were built in late 2006 under Casey's tenure as MNFI commander. Casey originally envisioned the network of joint security stations as a mechanism to help Baghdad's police assume control of the city as coalition forces withdrew over time. Each station would serve as a base of operations in a given neighborhood and, and coordinate patrols among U.S. and Iraqi forces, both army and police. When General David Petraeus assumed command of MNFI in February 2007, he transformed the purpose of joint security stations, making them the mechanism by which U.S. troops would increase their presence on the streets of the capital. And then last point uh, that, that, I'll, that, I'll, that I'll mention uh, harkens back to an earlier question, uh, to a question from the earlier panel, and that's uh, just a clarification on the approach to the development of Iraqi security forces. Um, also kind of a contrast in, in two models. So uh, in 2005, 2006, 
the model of uh, to or the mechanism by which to uh, to develop the Iraqi security forces was primarily through military transition teams or or MIT teams, as we would say. Um, in the late 2006, th this concept was was going to be uh, central to accelerating the transition to to Iraqi security forces uh, by enhancing uh, the, the MIT teams. And so the concept was we take the, we take the MIT teams that are operating uh, in an area and we'll use uh, U.S. conventional forces uh, or U.S. line units to provide security and enhance those military transition teams. And by doing so, by, by enhancing our, that, that capability, uh, we'll therefore be able to accelerate the transition uh, of, of these Iraqi security forces. Uh, the, the competing model, uh, which, which was uh, fielded, uh, really revisited uh, and fielded in 2007, was, was the partnering of, of U.S. forces with Iraqi forces. And this was made possible by, by the surge of, of U.S. units uh, into Baghdad and the surrounding areas. Uh, so uh, more units, more headquarters uh, translated into the ability to uh, for, the, for those headquarters and those soldiers to partner with Iraqi army and national police units uh, in their sectors. Uh, and so you had a, a synergy um, between the partnership of units and uh, the ongoing work of the military transition teams, which were still in place. Uh, but, but both of those aspects were, were under the control of the brigade combat team commander in, in the sector, and so you achieved a certain synergy. Uh, particularly as the Baghdad security plan was was developed and implemented, and then eventually this uh, this partnership uh, was transformed over time through the rotation of units and the stand up of of the U.S. advise and assist brigades. And with that, I'll conclude my re remarks. Uh, only adding that that I acknowledge that there's uh, there's much of importance that I didn't discuss. So I look forward to the Q and A. Thanks. Okay. Thanks, Seth. Thank you all so much. Um, I want to start by saying that uh, I was one of the outside readers on these two volumes, and I have read the entirety of these two volumes. Um, yes, I know, I get a little door prize for this. I'm one of the very few people who can actually make that claim. And I just want to tell you how worthwhile that actually is. Um, Frank and Joel, their team, they're in enormously talented people. But there's one thing that they're not talented at at all, which is actually explaining the worth of these volumes. They suck at that. <laughs> these two volumes are magnificent. Okay. Peter put it earlier that these are likely to be the official history of the Iraq War for the United States. I'm good with that. I'm so good with that. Yes, it would be lovely if we had more from the state side. Yes, it'd be fabulous if there were some official White House version. We're never going to get that. These versions, these volumes cover it. They cover it magnificently. Right? And let's start there. They are so beautifully written. It drives me nuts when, as Joel pointed out, what we get in the media is this moronic, the conclusion of the Army's history is that Iran won. Right? That's like watching Lawrence of Arabia and saying the conclusion is don't drive motorcycles. 
<laughs> right? Or reading Lord of the Rings and saying, never pick up a ring on the floor of a cave. Right? First, you miss the beauty of the stories themselves. Right? And obviously, these are painful, tragic, gut-wrenching stories. But there is such value in reading the stories in their fullness, in their richness, because they are beautifully told and because they speak to so much more than these simple points that people are pulling out of them. Right? You cannot boil down the lessons of America's experience in Iraq to a couple of bullet points. There is far too much there. And what's remarkable, what's incredible about these two volumes is how much you will learn from them. And it's easy to do the learning because it is so well written, so beautifully written. Right, most of you, you are, this is a Washington audience, right? You are accustomed to picking up US government publications that read with all of the juice and fervor of the instructions of how to assemble your new typewriter right, or lawnmower. Um, right? These are wonderful works of nonfiction. They read so easily. It makes it so easy to take in all of the information, to get the insights and the wisdom that their authors are trying to impart, but also to see for yourself insights and wisdom that you'll pick out of all of the information that's being revealed, because it is presented so beautifully. In addition, one of the things that's so remarkable about the work that this group of people did was how they weave together all of the different levels of analysis. Yes, there are stories about tactical engagements, but there are also stories about the highest levels of politics, about what was going on here in Washington, DC, about the interaction between the folks in Washington wrestling with domestic politics and strategy and you know, global questions about America's role in the world and the interaction with America's wider Middle East strategy, with the specific problems of Iraq, and how to translate that into winning this bloody war. And it's just incredible how they managed to weave all of those tales together. And Jim's section on the surge, to me, is one of the best examples of that in the entire book. Right? The surge is an unbelievably complex phenomenon. Right? And for me, one of the most painful things that I endlessly hear is people talking about the surge in incredibly simplistic ways. One of the things that volume two does so magnificently, but again, it's just emblematic of what this group of people has done throughout these works, is explain the surge both in all its complexity, but in ways that are simple enough for you to grasp without just getting completely lost in the weeds. Right, so as Jim was talking about, the surge is about additional troops in Iraq. It's also about the Anbar awakening. It's also about the Battle of Baghdad. And there are a couple of phenomenal chapters um, in volume two about the Battle of Baghdad and why that was so important. It's about dealing with the Shia and the Shia militias. Right, Joel talked about the internal civil wars that were going on, both the Sunni and Shia side. And these volumes capture all of that, help you to understand it and understand it easily and understand the interaction among all of these different events and why it was the sum total 
of those interactions that ultimately produce this remarkable transformation of what's going on in the war. Right? And that complexity is there throughout both of these volumes from start to finish, but they handle it so deftly that you always know exactly what's going on. You're not just being hit with endless little details here, there, and you're kind of bewildered by what this is all supposed to mean. It's part of a wider narrative that helps take you through it and understand this, this conflict in ways that I've not seen in any other work so far. It is remarkable in that sense. That complexity also speaks to another thing that really stood out to me throughout the entirety of this work, but especially in volume two. Um, I will here quote from the patron saint of warfare, Karl von Clausewitz, um, who famously said among his many you know, brilliant observations that the most important thing in war is understanding what kind of war you're fighting. Right? And one of the things that really stands out from this total history, but in particular in volume two, is the struggle to understand what kind of a war we're fighting because of that complexity. Right? The Iraq war is a lot of different conflicts rolled into one. And what was interesting to me was just in listening the different comments made this morning, you heard all of that. So people were talking about terrorist attacks, and there was a terrorism component to this conflict. And people were talking about insurgency, and there was an insurgent component to this conflict. And people were talking about civil war, and there was a civil war component of this conflict. And what was required to ultimately turn things around in that 2007-2008 period was to start to change a whole series of different American activities that got to all of those different problems. Right? Now, I will also say that I think, I wonder, put it that way, I wonder to what extent we paid the price for never fully grasping what this conflict looked like at the time. What I mean by that is, um, you know, English is a lovely language, um, and it expresses so many different things, but there's so much ambiguity in it as well. And I don't want to really have much of a conversation about semantics, but it actually matters here. Right? We talk about insurgency, we talk about guerrilla warfare. Typically, oftentimes, most people think that those are the same thing. They're not. They're completely different. Right? The term civil war, technically every insurgency is a civil war, but, but the truth is that when we talk about civil war, we actually mean something very different. Now, why is all this important? What's well, only important because what you do to solve the problem of terrorism is different from what you do to solve the problem of an insurgency, to some extent. They're very similar. And it's totally different from what you do to solve the problem of a civil war. In fact, what you do to solve the problem of a civil war is the polar opposite of what you do to solve the problem of an insurgency. And the worst thing, the dumbest thing you can possibly do is mistake one for the other and apply the wrong solution. That's exactly what the United States did in 2005. And I can remember from my own experience going in and arguing with the White House staff where they kept insisting, this is an insurgency, we've got it, we're going to have elections, the elections are going to fix the insurgency. Now, that would have been correct if what we were actually facing was primarily an insurgency. The problem was that by 2005, that insurgency had morphed into a civil war. And elections are the absolute worst possible thing that you can do in a civil war. 
which is why when we held two rounds of elections in 2005, as you guys were talking about earlier, the year of the Purple Fingers, those elections helped propel Iraq deeper into civil war. And I'll tell you that uh, you know, I was one of those people, you know, I was one of, an early proponent of the surge, I was talking about it in 2004, 2005, and I too was talking about it in terms of counterinsurgency. Now at one level again, it's fine. Okay? On the military side of things, what you do to shut down a civil war, what you do to combat an insurgency are more or less the same. Right? The problems, the real differences emerge on the political side of things. And I can remember having a conversation with Joe Klein, a journalist who was following this stuff very closely, and he was talking about you know, Petraeus coming in and adopting a true counterinsurgency strategy, and he said to me, but you've been telling me that this is not an insurgency anymore, it's a civil war, isn't that going to be problematic? And I said, don't worry, Joe, the first 12 steps are the same. Right? So whether they call it counterinsurgency or shutting down a civil war, doesn't matter. They're going to do the same thing. That's what matters, and it's really going to help. And that, of course, was correct. Right? Militarily, what you do is more or less the same. There are some small tweaks, but it's not terribly important. But of course, politically, they're very, very different. Right? And the biggest difference is that with an insurgency, you want to legitimize and empower the government. With a civil war, you want to get a power-sharing agreement that limits the power of the government. Right? And so our steps in the political realm in 2009 and 10 and 11, which again, the volume you know, lays bare, are exactly the things that help drive Iraq back into civil war. Because we're empowering the worst elements of the Shia, led by Nouri al-Maliki, who are trying to win the civil war and who are using the government to try to do it. And I even wonder, and at some point need to go back and have some conversations with folks in the Obama administration as to whether they thought they could walk away because they thought it was about counterinsurgency and now we had had nice elections and you know, we had legitimized the government and therefore we didn't need to stay, right? which is something you can do in, a, in a, an insurgency once you've reached that point. In a civil war, that force, the force that we represented, which was a peacekeeping force by that point in time, needed to stay. Because right, one of the things that one of the great lessons of history is that it takes about 10 to 15 years for people to learn to trust one another again so that you can withdraw that peacekeeping force and have a normal, stable environment. So that complexity also speaks to this problem that kind of comes through in both of these volumes, but especially in volume two, of wrestling with this question of what kind of war is it that we were fighting, given how complicated a conflict it was, and of course added to that another theme that comes through these volumes over and over again is the limited willingness of our political leadership to provide it with the time and the resources needed to actually address the problem. Which brings me to the last comment that I wanted to make about in particular volume two, but also volume one to a certain extent. Because the last thing that really has stood out to me in reading these phenomenal volumes has been the ability of our armed forces to adjust, to adapt, to learn, and to change. As I said, I was arguing in favor of moving to a counterinsurgency strategy, additional forces, reaching out to the Sunni communities, all the kind of components of what became the surge um, back in the 2004-2005 timeframe. And at that time, I remember having being part of a debate. I'm not going to characterize it more than that, but being part of a debate, a small private debate among a bunch of very, very former, very, very senior US government officials. 
And I was making the case for what eventually became the surge. Again, this would have been very early 2005. And one of the people present who had been a former, you know, been a very senior uh, Defense Department official, and later went back and became an even more senior Defense Department official. That person said to me more or less, you know, Ken, what you're talking about sounds reasonable, probably even right. But the thing that you're missing is that our military will take 10 years to figure out how to do low intensity conflict. Right? And we don't have that much time. Right? And I remember at the time kind of thinking, you know, that's a, a, that's a pretty tough counter argument. And I don't know if it's wrong or right. And one of the things that was stunning to me, and again comes through in these volumes, because of the way that they treat both the component parts and the bigger pictures and integrate them so beautifully, is how incredible a transformation that was. How our military adapted endlessly, right? And you heard it in all the conversations, all the presentations and discussions this morning. People talking about how our military was put in situations that they were never expecting, that they were told not to expect. And all of a sudden they're there, and they're forced to deal with it, and they are working and adapting and trying. And you know, again, as Kim pointed out, sometimes they got it totally wrong. Right? But what was also really important about her story about that colonel mistreating that uh, Sunni Sheikh was that everybody else in the unit knew that was a mistake. They had learned the lesson. Right? And what really comes through in volume two in particular is how during the course of this time, the military figures this stuff out, right? And some of it is coordinated, and some of it is just on-the-job training, right? But they figure it out. And it is one of the most important stories, is how the US military transforms itself to deal with these problems that it was told never to expect, told not to plan for, told it would never deal with. And I will simply end by saying that I know that one of the great debates that we're having in the US military right now and one of the great quandaries that we're facing is whether to hang on to that experience, whether it matters for the future, whether we'll ever fight a war like this ever again. I don't know. Uh, typically, we fight exactly whatever war we least expect. Right? That seems to be the kind of constant in American military history, that whatever war we're expecting, we fight the polar opposite. I don't know what the next war will be. I hope, obviously, that there will never be another war, but I suspect that there probably will be. Our military did such a remarkable job in learning how to deal with the circumstances that it faced in Iraq, as described so beautifully by these two volumes. It would be a tragedy if we lose that. Thank you, Ken. Let's open up for discussion for about 10 minutes. Um, if you have a question, please raise your hand. Uh, in the back, and we'll get you a microphone. Uh, yes, I have one question about, uh, at the same time you're talking about, in the fall of 2006, early 2007, uh, the uh, Army Marine Corps came out with a new counterinsurgency manual. Um, in the history, could you tell if that really had any effect in the next two years, or was it really, as uh, Ken Pollock talked about, adaptation at the local level? Yes. So uh, when you say the Marine Corps manual, I mean, I'm familiar with the, the Joint uh, Army Marine Corps, okay, FM 324. 
is that what you're referring to, I think. Um, well, I, th I think it had an influence uh, in the sense that uh, General Petraeus, uh, who, who uh, was in charge of uh, the, the, the Army portion of that, while I believe General Mattis was in charge of the, the Marine portion of that, uh, formulated a lot of this idea, his ideas, or, or uh, took a personal interest in that manual. Um, a lot of the discussion that, that provided the input for that manual uh, took place in, in workshops and such that, that, that he, uh, General Petraeus, uh, uh, sponsored. Uh, and so it was, it was kind of a picture of, you know, th throwing the pass uh, and then uh, and his assignment as uh, the MNFI commander uh, catching it uh, in Iraq. Uh, and so I, I think um, uh, how I would summarize it is uh, you have a lot of uh, counterinsurgency. I mean, General, General Casey himself would say that he was fighting a counterinsurgency campaign. And so you, you, have, you have a lot of uh, counterinsurgency uh, techniques being taught in, in Iraq. Um, but, but it's not until 2007 where you have kind of a, uh, a uniform uh, application of those techniques throughout the country and, and not in uh, isolated units. So I think the, I think the idea, the ideas of counterinsurgency are, um, are, are known uh, and implemented in some cases. Uh, I think after the publication of the manual, uh, you, you have a more uniform application of it. Part of that, I think, is due, be, due to the manual, um, but, but part of it is also uh, because you've got uh, the, the chief sponsor of that manual in charge of implementation in Iraq. Yeah, just to echo what Jim said, Tom. I mean, I think that I saw that manual as being the kind of collective wisdom, right, an effort to take all of that improv improvisation that I was talking about, as well as older wisdom that was inherent in the military, codify it and say, this is what we're going to do moving forward, right? And especially at the tactical level, I think that that was very important in kind of getting everybody on the same sheet of music. That said, um, I will name a name here, you know, Pete Mansour. I think the world of Pete. He's a phenomenal military officer, a phenomenal historian. And Pete wrote a, a really nice book on the surge called The Surge. Um, and at one point, I you know, read the book, I thought it was excellent. But there's a, a place in the book, in the first half, I can't remember exactly where, but Pete lays out, this is what we're going to do during the surge, right? And he's really nice and clear. And I took that, and I took FM324, and if you look at them, there, there's, there's almost nothing in common, right? What's on those pages is what they knew was the right answer for Iraq, right? Politically, militarily, economically, in every single way, right? They understood after having spent, you know, three, four years and, you know, too much blood, uh, blood, sweat, and tears in Iraq, they understood what needed to happen. By the way, this is true on the political side as well. I remember having conversations with Ryan Crocker and Charlie Reese and that whole team over at the embassy, right? They couldn't describe to you what the theory of what they were doing was. They just knew that this is what needed to happen in Iraq. And they went about doing it. And it just so happens that what they did, both on the military side with you know, Petraeus, Dubik, Dempsey, all those guys, what they did on the military side and what Ryan and his team did on the political side was exactly what you were supposed to do, what the history teaches that you need to do to shut down a civil war, which is why it worked.
right? But it was less about you know, the theory or this or that. It was much more about a group of people who had come to grips with this problem, who had learned how to do it, and were implementing. I mean, just to put a, just to put a bow on that, um, it, you've, so, so I, I don't want to give the impression that FM324 is a blueprint for, for what then happened, uh, because there were certainly, I mean, it certainly was not complete or comprehensive in that sense, because it's not going to provide an answer for everything you encounter in Iraq. And just as an example would be uh, the, the approach to, to the awakening uh, and, and how to deal with uh, civil wars within a civil war, right? So there's, and General Odierno used to refer to what he was dealing with was coin plus, right? So there was, there was counterinsurgency, but there were some, some political dimensions to that that, that exceeded uh, what was in the manual. Last question. All right, up here in the front. Hi, my name is Fred Peterson. I served in Operation Iraqi Freedom One in the Second Battle of Fallujah. The first Battle of Fallujah was widely regarded as a classic case of making two mistakes, rushing in mistake one, pulling out quickly is mistake two. And among other things, we figured that pulling out after rushing in gave the insurgents, specifically the Al-Qaeda link guys, a lot of street cred in the Sunni bloc and gave them a platform to further their ambitions of stirring up sectarian tension and civil war. And the grander th scheme of things, how much do you think that mistake played into the situation that we ended up having to deal with? Um, so I'll, I'm going to treat that in a wider sense, right? Um, and you know, again, it was something that was really, I was having a little PTSD, a little flashbacks in the first panel, because we were talking about uh, how the United States handled uh, the invasion and the failure to actually deal with reconstruction and really take it on. Um, because again, a lot of the decisions that were made at the time, right, and again, it's one of the the book is so beautifully even-handed as well, right? It, it's hard not to read it and say that was a mistake, but the authors all went to such trouble to try to portray the decisions in their proper context to give people their proper due. I think it's a, a wonderfully important work. And you know, all the decisions that were made at the time, there's a logic to them. Right? They seem, in many cases, to be smart or common sense. Right? And in many cases, you know, it's people who are doing things that they have never done before and have no context for doing before. Right? They don't even have analogies in their heads for you know, what to do about it. And so they're doing the thing that they think makes the most sense. Right? And we are listening to Iraqis. Right? And what was, what, what was striking to me at the time, what is striking to me since, was that before we ever invaded, um, if you spoke to the community of people who had done post-conflict reconstruction, all around the world and all these different places. One of the most important things that they said was, you do not allow the Iraqis, you do not allow the indigenous population to run things for at least eight years. OK. 
Okay? And one of the main reasons, it goes to a point that Kim was making on the first panel, which is you're not going to know what the right answer is. You're not going to know who the good people are and who the bad people are. Right? You're not going to know if you turn over security to this group or that group whether they're going to do the right thing or the wrong thing. And so the most important thing that you do is that you hold on to sovereignty and security until you're absolutely certain, until you've built new institutions of security and new political institutions to run them and have worked out the relationships between them. And they said that takes at least eight years. Right? And to me, you know, the issue of Fallujah, like so many of these, was the US being caught in between. Right? We did get the fact that we didn't really know who these people were, and we had heard bad things. Let's be honest, we had heard bad things about all of them. Right? Because everybody was saying bad things about everybody else. Right? The number of people who were uniformly described as good, honest, wonderful, hardworking nationalists, you know, I could probably count on one hand. Every Iraqi has some enemy, has some rival. There's someone out there who's going to say bad things about them. And so oftentimes we would do stuff like that thinking, well, we need to go in and take it. And then people would say, no, 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 that's the worst thing you can do. You're delegitimizing you know, the people who you want to empower. So, okay, let's you know, step out. And it, again, it was that absence of understanding, that absence of planning, right? but that absence of a willingness to say, you know what, this is truly on our shoulders, right? and we're going to have to make this work. And to me, the Battle of Fallujah was just one among many examples of that. Let me just conclude by thanking the folks who wrote this and spent three years working on it. How many, Joel? Three and a half years. Um, as a national security professional and a government historian, uh, to see how hard it was for them to do this, and just to logistically make it happen, to get it through a very large and complicated bureaucracy, and to tell the story as, as well as Ken described them as telling it. Uh, I think, really, they've performed an admirable public service. And so thank you all for everything you did. Here, so let's here. join them back up.